The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, Dao Tends the Sick. No pointer. The whole body being sickness, Vimalakirti is hard to cure. The grass being usable for medicine, Manjushri uses it well. How can that compare to calling on a transcendent person and gaining peace and well-being? Guishan asked Dawu, where are you coming from? Dawu said, I'm coming, I'm, I've come from tending the sick. Guishan said, how many people were sick? Dawu said, there were the sick and the not sick. Guishan said, isn't the one not sick you, ascetic jur? Dawu said, being sick and not being sick have nothing to do with this one at all. Speak quickly. Guishan said, even if I could say something, it would have no relation. Hongzhir's verse. When has the wonderful medicine ever passed the mouth? Even the miraculous physician can't exist it. Utterly empty, you are basically not existent. Not perishing, yet born. Alive, without dying. Completely transcending before prehistoric Buddhas. Walking alone after the empty eon, subsisting peacefully, sky covers, earth supports, moving on, the sun flies, the moon runs. Such beautiful poetry. <laughs> Studying birth and death which includes everything and everything in between. And the pointer is referring to Vimalakirti, who's the non-historical lay disciple of the Buddha, who was considered to be enlightened equal to the Buddha, and was sick. And in the Vimalakirti Sutra, the Buddha prevails upon his many students to go pay a sick call to Vimalakirti. And finally they do. And when they arrive, Manjushri says, <clears throat> asks about how he's doing. How is your condition? Is it livable? Is your sickness diminishing, not increasing? And then he says, householder, whence comes this th sickness of yours? Where did it come from? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? Vimalakirti said, Manjushri, my sickness comes from delusion and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the illnesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from illness, I would also not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings. And sickness is inherent in living in this world. Were all living beings free from sickness, the bodhisattva would also be free from sickness. For example, when the child of a, of a, parents, a, a set of parents becomes sick, 
on account of the sickness of their child. And the parents will suffer as long as that child does not recover from their illness. Just so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if they were their only child. They become sick when people are sick, and they are cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence comes my sickness? The sicknesses of the Bodhisattvas arise from great compassion. And so the Buddha, the great physician, offered the teachings and practices as a path of liberation from the fundamental illness of delusion. A fundamental condition of being out of sorts. <laughs> and when <clears throat> Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, what is the nature of your sickness? What kind of sickness do you have? Vimalakirti said, it's not material, it's not visible. Manjushri said, is it physical or mental? Vimalakirti said, it's not physical since the body is insubstantial, not solid, not fixed. It is not mental since the nature of the mind is like an illusion. Manjushri said, well, which of the four elements is disturbed? Earth, water, fire, or air? And Vimalakirti said, I am sick only because the elements of living beings are disturbed by sicknesses. And so this is the illness that we are addressing, is our delusion, the illness in a sense of our mind, of the clashes, of our attachments and false views. And that liberating ourselves from the illusions doesn't mean we won't get physically sick. Doesn't mean we don't get older and die. All of those things are immutable truths, but that as in the Sutra of the Two Darts, that the dart of adversity, of a heartbreak, of an illness, of impending death, is experienced just as it is. We don't shoot another dart, which is the dart of suffering, the dart of mental anguish, of being mired in what we want and don't want, of inner conflict, outer conflict. What is the sickness of our clinging? Last week I met with a group of students from Middlebury College who were studying modern Buddhism. And I spoke for a while, it was on Zoom, and I spoke for a while, and, and then I asked if they had any questions. Nobody said anything, which <laughs> happens all too often. Um, and I waited for a while, waited for a while, waited for a while, and I said, okay, look, I have a question. And I said, who here has not, raise your hand, if you have not experienced sorrow, or fear, or sadness, or disappointment, or betrayal, or anguish, or loneliness? Let me see your hands. You know what happened. And I said, okay, so we all know these things. What do you do when they arise? How do you meet them? How do we avoid aversion? How do we avoid grasping? How do we avoid indifference? How to live in samsara without creating more samsara? How to live within our delusion as we are on this enlightening path without creating more delusion? 
And because that's inevitable, as we are still deluded, what do we do when we create delusion? How do we respond? And in the beginning, and for as long as it takes, what appears before us does seem pretty material and physical and visible and mental. It seems like something's happening to me. The emotions seem pretty strong. They take over. A mood can take over. Thoughts can take over. And we respond. We get anxious. We breathe deeply. We sweat. We, we panic. We do all kinds of things sitting peacefully on this cushion looking like a Buddha. <laughs> Master Dogen in the Lancet of, of, of Inquiry said, do not value what is far away, but don't despise it. Just become completely familiar with it. Do not despise what is near at hand and do not value it. Be completely familiar with it. Do not take the eyes lightly, but don't give them weight. Do not give weight to your ears, but don't take them lightly. Make your eyes and ears clear and sharp. What wonderful guidance, instruction, and practice. The middle way. And so while things appear to us as substantial, as something, and something that is doing something to me, while that all seems true, we need to practice that skillfully based on the way we're experiencing it. And so we do. We practice it as though it, all of that is happening, because it is in our perception. But because we encounter the teachings from the very beginning that things are not as they appear, the thought, the emotion, the sensation, the suffering, they don't exist apart. They are mind. When we look carefully, we can't find any place where they abide. We are cultivating faith in the possibility that that is true. And so while we're practicing at once as though they are substantial, we're developing faith that they are not. And both of those things are happening together. And as the experience and the sense and the, the belief and the conviction that everything is substantial and is, and I'm just at the mercy of it, more or less, as that is getting clarified, understanding our experience of what things really are, how things really are working, becomes stronger. And so along the way, we have to learn how to become, to be at ease within our discomfort. Right? So we might think, you know, hallelujah, this is the path of alleviating suffering, so will it all stop today? By the end of Sashin, for sure. Right? And so we realize, oh, no, it's not quite working that way. So we have to learn how to be at ease within our suffering as we are trying to diminish and understand how it is created. We are learning how to abide lightly within our attachments because the clinging is still there. That muscle is still strong. But how to abide lightly. Don't take it too lightly, but don't give it more weight than it's due. 
and how to be, be questioning and have doubts about those things that seem so certain and true, like our inner voice. And so here, Guishan and Dao Wu, who were like cousins, well, they weren't cousins, they were really from different lineages, but they knew each other, obviously. And so Guishan asked Dao Wu, where are you coming from? Dao Wu says, I'm coming from tending the sick. Maybe he was visiting a, a family or a Sangha member tending the sick. And Guishan says, how many people were sick? Well, there were those who were sick and there were those who were not sick. A footnote to that says, it turns out you have a second moon. There are two moons in the sky, one that's sick and one that's not sick. And Guishan says, isn't the one who is not sick you? Aren't you the one who is not sick? Dawu said, being sick, not being sick, have nothing to do with this one at all. Speak quickly. Guishan says, well, even if I could say something, it would have no relation. This is like how the Heart Sutra would have a conversation. (laughs) Speaking from that place, that wisdom, that the Heart Sutra so incredibly expounds and meeting another in that very place, on that ground, and having a conversation in that very place. There were the sick and the not sick. Dogen said, as a Buddha is in birth and death, there is no birth and death. What does it mean to be in birth and death? the birth and death of this very moment that is arising in a past that just did, and just did, and just did, and just did. How to be in that? All throughout the body. All over the body. All throughout the ocean is nothing but wetness. All over the mountain is spring. But who can know this? And what this is pointing to is not something that you manipulate in your mind, in your zazen, to get to. It's not a contrived, controlled state of perception or experience. It's the basic state of things, the basic space of things. And since it's unborn, it can't be created. Since it is not abiding, you can't get closer to it. Because it's empty of any characteristic, you can't touch it. And so how do we come closer? What does that even mean? Well, the Heart Sutra says, just don't build walls. Just don't build walls in your mind. Walls of distance. Walls that keep others out and keep us in. That are the very stuff of that sense of division, of distance, of separation. It's another way of saying, let go. Calm the mind. Be mindful. Strengthen your concentration. Let go. And then let go more. And then more. And then let go of letting go. All over the body. In this path of our human life, we meet sickness. We get sick. We get out of sorts. Sometimes it's mild, sometimes it's very serious. 
Sometimes it takes our life. It's part of having a human body. And when we think about it, I was thinking about a meeting with some of you, <laughs> doing one continuous thread last night, and we were talking about this, and I thought, and I said, you know, being sick, in a way, we might think of it as a kind of a bardo experience. If we think of health, good health, and death, and what's in between when we get sick. We're alive, but we're not in full um, reach of our, of our capacities, right? We're out of sorts. And to think about even how, you know, as, as vibrant and, and vital as we are as human beings, as resilient, how much stamina we can have to endure so much, and at the same time, curiously, we're so fragile. I mean, a mosquito bite. You're sitting there and your nose itches. Oh, oh. <laughs> right. Nobody's in trouble. Nobody's in danger. But it's so uncomfortable. Right? And it seizes the mind. And it's hard to let go of that until it's gone, done with. And that's, those are, you know. And so think about being tired, being tired during this week, and how it inhabits the body, right? It's just not, oh, my pinky, it's all there. It's just in my pinky. My pinky's tired, the rest of me's fine, so <laughs> I'll just sort of keep it, you know, contained there. And it's not like that, right? Tiredness is like all over. A mood. You wake up and you feel a little cranky, you know? And you put on your shoes and you can't find them. You kick over them in the dark and you start grumbling. Then you try and put them on. You can't get the laces in. It's just building and building. <laughs> and it takes over, right? How vulnerable we are to ourselves. And so if we think of that not just as a nuisance, or a sickness that we just want to get well, and we do, naturally. But as, as we're living, right? We're still living while during that period. Everything is still in place. We still are practitioners. We still have refuge. We still have our mind and awareness. But now the system is out of sorts. And again, it might be minor, it might be major. And so if we think of that as a practice, is that even in a way a practice to prepare us the lesser illnesses? A practice for the major, larger illnesses. The smaller deaths to health, to capacity, to control, to being able to do what we used to do. Is that a preparation for the larger losses that are coming? How do we live this life now, because now is where it's at. And at the same time, be preparing ourselves, learning how to meet what is coming. There's the sick and the not sick. And so when you feel tired, and you are tired, right? And there are ways to practice that. Give energy to your posture. It's a mountain form. It's the form of the Buddha. Sit in that. 
Open your eyes. Breathe. In other words, when you have, when you're lacking energy, draw deep and bring energy forth. It's there. When your mind is dull and scattered, gather it. Gathering the mind is said to be one translation of seshin. And what we find is we do, we have it, it's there. And that becomes more and more accessible, more natural, more available, and more steady. And we, what we discover, I remember the Dalai Lama, I was listening to talk of his, and he said, you know, that with all of his training and practice and the wisdom of the teachings, that when he came to the time of his death, he felt confident that he would be able to meet that within the Dharma, within Buddha Dharma, as it is. And he said, but I don't know. If I go down in a plane crash, I don't know. (laughs) You know? And I thought, thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for that, because we don't know, right? We don't know how we will meet our end, and we don't know how we will be at that time. We can have a a perfect plan. You've got everything in your briefcase set by the door, ready to go in the case of emergency. Doesn't necessarily work out like that. So to have that humility at the same time that we are training. And that we are training in meeting the expected and the unexpected. The easy and the difficult. The small and the large. The minor and the major. That's what we're training in. She was speaking about that last night. When Dadaroshi said, crawl under your bed and die, well, that's one option. But to rouse that great spirit, bodhicitta, the ferocity, right, that we have to to live, to love life, to want to, to still have work to do. Not just out of clinging, although there may be some, but because we want to have more time to give, to serve, to, to, to train, to, to, to plumb the depths. But when we are sick, when we are meeting those moments, we realize the reality is different than, than the idea, right? Than the plan. Dogen says the countenance of the mountains is completely different when we're in the world gazing off at the mountains and when we are in the mountains meeting the mountains. Our consideration and our understanding should not be the same as a dragon's understanding. We're not dragons. Humans and gods reside in their own worlds. And other beings may have doubt about this, or they may not. An interesting passage. And so to bring forth our humility, our faith, our courage to take refuge in our training. I mean, that's the the purpose of any thing, any human endeavor in which we train over and over and over and over again, repetitively, going back to it over and over. It's felt so integrated in our system that when something arises, we're taken by surprise, something unexpected. We're not at a loss. Right? That's what we have available to us, or we don't revert back to unhelpful habits. But we need to practice this body and mind, not the body and mind of a dragon or God 
or an animal or a plant, they all reside in their own worlds, even with intimate communication. We reside in our world as our species and even within our own person. And so we can't practice as another. We have to practice as this one. And that intimacy is not a matter of distance in inches or miles. It's mind. I mean, isn't that the pain? The ultimate pain of delusion, of samsara, is that distant, that estrangement, when all we want, all human beings have ever wanted, is direct contact, unity. And so we let go of what arises as the self, of what we cling to as the self, of what we arises as the other, and what we cling to as the other. And we do that so we can be in the presence of our own sickness or death, or we can be in the presence of another's. So we can be in the presence of an oak tree, in the presence of Kenon Bodhisattva. You know, in all the times that I've been in the presence of people who are very ill and dying, and others come into the room. What comes into the room inevitably is the self of the person. And not in an abstract way, but their relationship both to this person that they're coming to see and be with and help, but their relationship with sickness, with death. That files into the room. (laughs) You can't keep it out. And that can be incredibly helpful, valuable. It can be. If we see it, if we practice it, it can also be very burdensome for the one that we're trying to help. I remember when my mom was dying, and my siblings and I were all there, and I was there with her, and she and my older sister were getting to a thing, getting into a thing, and um, which was familiar, but it was, you know, getting a little lively. And I had the impulse to kind of try and help. You know, my mom was dying. And I stopped and I said, and I thought, they have karma that they need to work out. And now's the time. And so I just left the room. And we may do that and we may not. That's the thing. And so we have these practices, precautions, precepts, bringing mindfulness. And we have practices of letting go of the self into an intention, into one action, into visualizing people that you are wishing kindness and compassion gladness and equanimity in the four measurables in your mind. You visualize them, and you send that to them. You wish that for them. You offer that to them. And in the presence of someone who is sick or dying, we may feel empathy, feel sorrow, pain, anguish, their sorrow, pain, and anguish. But we're not feeling their anguish or sorrow. Their situation is a part of it. Our concern for them is a part of it. That's what the stuff of empathy, but it's 
It's in us. It's, it's ours. When the Cohen student works with the oak tree in the garden, they're not pretending to know what it's like to be a tree. We can't know that. That's not our realm. What we're exploring is what is it as a human being in the human realm to have this perception of this being. And in that, when that oak tree is all over the body, what is it? We are enlightened to the experience of the oak tree in our mind, which is how we experienced all things. We don't experience them apart from mind. When in the mountains, you don't see the mountains. When we're not in the mountains, don't be deceived by that distance. And so there is delusion within delusion. There's delusion within enlightenment. There's enlightenment within delusion. As we gain understanding, we don't leave samsara. We don't go anywhere. We're just no longer creating in the same way or with the same passion (laughs) the stuff of our delusion. How do we create that? We'll take that passage of Dogen's. Value what is far away in one moment, and then in the next moment, despise it. Don't become completely familiar with it. Don't know. Don't examine. Despise what is near at hand right now and tomorrow. Value it greatly. Don't get to know it. Don't examine. Don't come closer. Sometimes take your eyes lightly, and other times give them a lot of extra weight. (laughs) Burden your ears. And other times, just ignore them. (laughs) Keep your eyes and ears cloudy and dim. (laughs) You know, it's like every living thing learns, has to learn how to be in a world that it has adversity in it and, and that they can't control. So a tree, every species of tree, every kind of tree has, has learned, evolved over centuries, thousands of years, how to deal with too much sun and not enough sun, too much rain and not enough rain, too much wind, insects, fire, because they can't move, right? That's their realm. So they have learned how to, in a sense, become tolerant, immune to that, to those sources. And and to a great extent, it works, right? Because here they are with us. Sometimes they succumb when it becomes too out of balance. The conditions are no longer right for them to continue to live. And the same is true for us. And so we also, as we grow up and experience those adverse conditions, things that we're not getting enough of, we're getting too much of, too much sunlight, not enough sunlight, flooded with rain, caught in a drought. And we have to figure out how to make that work because that's what we've got. Even though we can move, we can't move away from those things necessarily. 
And I was thinking about it as I was thinking about this. I was thinking about growing up in my house as, my, as this person. <laughs> and I have great parents, had great parents. They were wonderful people, but they had their hands full. They had a lot going on. And so I thought, I don't want to burden them with asking them for stuff that I might need. And so I just went to work. I don't know, I was 10, 11. I started mowing lawns, throwing newspapers. I just started working so that I didn't have to ask them. I didn't have to burden them with that because I thought they have enough to deal with. I don't want to add to that. And so I just kept doing that all the way through grade school, all the way through high school, all the way. Still hasn't stopped, I guess. And I learned a lot in that. There were a lot of incredibly important things. I wouldn't have trade, trade that for anything, what I learned as a young person. Because I was doing it. My parents were not really that involved. I went out looking for work. I applied. I had to show up. I had to get myself there. I guess I could have asked them to give me a ride, but they probably would have said, can't you ride your bike? Which is what I did, so I didn't ask. <laughs> but what I didn't learn was how to ask for help. I didn't learn that. Right? Because that wasn't, that didn't seem like, that didn't seem available. Not in that way. There were other ways in which, of course, they helped me. But in those sort of material ways, I didn't want to add to their ways. So that was something that I wasn't actually practicing. I wasn't developing a skill in. And bringing that all the way. And, of course, there's a lot of good that comes from that. Self-reliance, being self-resourceful, figuring things out learning how to be responsible, just dealing with it. Just dealing with it, basically. <laughs> but there were other things. So I was, in a sense, building up tolerances, immunities to be able to live or thrive, as best I, as I knew, within that environment where there was, you know, insufficient over, over, you know, sufficient supply of things. But there were other things that weren't being developed, like, right? So the tree has to, to, to protect itself against insects. One way is to build a very thick bark, right? Very thick skin. Well, we do that too. And it serves, it protects. It's hard to get through. It's hard to get out. And so the sickness that we create the sickness of not asking for help, how, how good qualities, good virtues, self-reliance, resourcefulness, all those things, how they then become sort of colored with sickness. There are ways in which they continue to serve, so we continue to use them, but there are other ways in which they're not serving. They're holding us back. And that's what we begin to see, that karma. That's the self that is arising. We see that on the cushion. We see that between ourselves. We see that playing out. And we need to. And so we deal with that on the basis of how it appears to us. And then as we continue, we need to deal with it and realize it's not what it appears. This person, this self, this suffering is not as it appears to be. And so Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how should a, a bodhisattva, sick with illness of the world, work with their mind? 
And this is true for any kind of sickness. And Vimalakirti said, a, a sick bodhisattva should work with their mind with the following consideration. Consider this. Sickness arises from your total involvement in the process of misunderstanding false views from beginningless time. It's been going on a long time. It arises from the passions, our grasping, our clinging, our desires, that result from unreal mental constructions, the fantasies of what we want, of what we're going to get, of how it's going to help us, or how it's going to take the pain away, of how it's going to save us. The result from unreal mental constructions, and hence, we see that ultimately nothing is perceived that can be said to be sick. Why? Because the body is the issue of the four main elements. In other words, earth, air, fire, and water. That's what we're made of. And in these elements, when you look closely, or you could say arms, fingers, toes, knees, groin, belly, head, in these elements, in these parts, when you look closely, carefully, with a mind that is sharp and clear, you find no owner and no agent, nothing that can be possessed. There is no self in this body, and except for an arbitrary insistence on the self, I love that, an arbitrary ins- insistence. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I am me. <laughs> Other than that, <laughs> nothing can be found. And so Vimalakirti says, so rather than think of yourself as I, me, mine, think of yourself as a thing, right? Just something that is passing through time and space and is having perceptions. In other words, take the self-involvement out, the personalizing. It's just a moment. It's just an experience, just a sensation. In other words, let the... Our, putting ourselves in the center of that. Just relax, go over, sit here for a while. And then he says, but then we have to go further and realize that actually it's, we're not a thing either. So it's kind of interesting, so it's work through stages. So for going from self to emptiness is too great a leap. So first, just be a thing. And then give that up. And Manjushu says, but how do we heal ourselves of this sickness? And Vimalakirti said, by dissolving, releasing, liberating egoism, our self-centeredness, and our possessiveness, possessing, possessing, appropriating, making mine. How do we do that? By freeing ourselves from the idea of duality. It all comes down to this or that. So, what kind of meditator are you after anyway? Are you a good one or a bad one? Well, for that matter, what kind of person are you? Are you a good one or a bad one? Do you do good things or do you bad things? Do you have good thoughts? Do you have negative thoughts? Are you moving away from birth or are you moving towards death? Are you holding on, or a holding on kind of person or are you a letting go kind of person? When it all comes down to that, Vimalakirti says, then it just continues to be a bit of a tyranny. Because even if in this moment you're on the winning side, there's someone coming up behind. 
And so to free ourselves from duality, how do we do that? By relinquishing our involvement with our attachment to the inside and outside, the me and the you, the boundary, the wall, the idea that that's all we are. To not deviate, to not fluctuate, to not distract yourself from equanimity. He's just describing what Zazen is. That in the deviations, don't deviate. In the fluctuations, don't fluctuate. Stable. Stay stable, grounded. Stay aware. Stay alive. And as you are fluctuating, as you, the river comes by and sweeps you down, see that you're sweeping down the river. Know that. That is a practice of not deviating. And what is equanimity? Vimalakirti said, it's the sameness, the equality, the same nature of everything, from self to liberation, from heaven to hell, from beginning to end, from birth to death. This is how the teachings in the Mahayana and very often in the Zen tradition give us instruction through these kinds of teachings. And we have to read this and say, oh, that's describing my Zazen. That's what I should be practicing. And don't you hear, I hope you hear, the basic, in, the basic teachings of Zazen in what these, what these te- sutra is saying. And so when Dawu says there was the sick and the not sick, and that being sick or not being sick have nothing to do with this one. That's not where I find myself. That's not the position I take. That's not the way the world is. That's not the way I see the world. And then he says, you speak. And Guisha says, well, even if I were to say something, it would have no relation. To be in relation is to take a position. And so don't deny what's right in front of you. Don't grasp at what's in front of you. Just become completely familiar with it. Let your eyes and ears be clear and sharp. And isn't this why we chant Prajnapadamita is the great mantra, the best mantra, the unsurpassable mantra, the vivid mantra. This is Prajnapadamita, speaking, having a conversation for us. So that within it all, we can not perish, though born, be alive without dying, walk alone after the empty eons, between heaven and earth, be the honored one. Subsist peacefully. Let the sky cover. Let the earth support. Move on while the sun flies and the moon runs. In other words, to be at peace in the world that is not at peace. To keep the heart open in a world that would have you shut it tight. To be clear and clear seen in a world that would, is trying desperately to confuse your mind to walk alone and to know that there 
in that you find everyone. Everyone. Like a loom and shuttle weaving a tapestry. Hundreds of different threads. Thicknesses, colors, strengths, lengths, all being woven into one beautiful, strong cloth, which now can be truly useful. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.